Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Erica. I'm Steve. And I'm Sarah. And we are just into a new series we started last time, uh, taking a look for each of us at important voices or figures uh, outside of our individual traditions who uh, have been important influences, who have something to offer us and have uh, deepened or benefited our faith. Last time, Erica introduced us to Richard Foster and the celebration of discipline, and we explored not just him and his book, but also the values of Quakerism for a bunch of Lutherans and Methodists. Um, And uh, where are we going to go today, Sarah? So today I want to talk about a Greek Orthodox saint called uh, Elder Pacios of Mount Athos. He can also be called Saint Pacios. And this guy has a lot of names. Because he's a saint, he has the name he was born with. And then he has the name that he was given when he first became a monk. And then Pesios is a name that he got when I think he got ordained. Um, But they're all Greek. So I figured out how to pronounce the name that he was last given in is best known by, which is Pesios. So that's what we're going to call him, even though he has many, many names. Um, So this guy was born shortly, he was born in the late 1900s, so not that long ago, and he was um was born right as like Greece was experiencing some political unrest and so he was um like I think Greece and Turkey were having some sort of war or unrest and he was baptized by this this priest who named him after himself, um, which I don't know how to pronounce, but I think the name is Arsinos. My Greek is really bad. I'm sorry, guys. And um, he baptized him, gave him his own name, and prophesied that he would become a great spiritual leader. And this priest went on to, like, lead a bunch of the people from the town, including his family, um, away and in, into a safer place. And shortly after they arrived in this new place, died. And so the the family kind of held on to this, this germ, the seed of an idea that Pacios would grow up to become this great spiritual leader. And... Um, but that didn't happen for quite a while. Uh, he ended up being enlisted and um, during the Greco-Turkish War of um, 1919 to 1922. And no, that was what that was when he was born. Anyway, he got enlisted in the army at some point. I don't know when. And uh, he was the guy who would sit at the radio and like listen for radio frequency of, for the enemy. And uh, was very successful. Everybody, like, had nothing but good things to say about this guy. And he wanted to go and join the monastic life after that, after this war was over. But he couldn't because his younger sisters were still unmarried and he was now responsible for them. So he had to wait until his sisters all got married. And then he became a monk. And he... Obviously, since he's now a saint, very successful as a monk. He traveled, he went to a couple of different places. Um, 
he read a lot and he preached a lot and taught a lot. And a lot of the things that he taught was written down. And there are many books published. I don't want to say by him, but like, cause a lot of it is people going around and just like following him around and like writing down what he said. Um, and so as, as a result, a lot of the things that he said seems to be just like nuggets of wisdom. It's not like a very like, oh, yes, this is a whole chapter on on this. It's more of like this chapter is a collection of things that he has said. Um, and that's how I found him is I found a quote of his. I want to say a year and a half ago to two years ago. And it is why I really like is because of this one quote and um i'm just going to read it to you because it's like my favorite quote now um but some people tell me that they are scandalized because they see many things wrong in the church i tell them that if you ask a fly are there any flowers in this area it will say i don't know about flowers but over there in that heap of rubbish you can find all the filth you want and it will go on to list all of the unclean things it has been to now, if you ask a honeybee, have you seen any unclean things in this area? It will reply, unclean things? No, I have not seen any. The place here is full of the most fragrant flowers. And it will go on to name all of the flowers of the garden or the meadow. You see, the fly only knows where the unclean things are, while the honeybees knows all beautiful iris or hyacinth is. As I have come to understand, some people resemble the honeybee and some resemble the fly. Those who resemble the fly seek to find evil in every circumstance and are preoccupied with it. They see no good anywhere. But those who resemble the honeybee only see the good in everything they see. The stupid people think stupidly and take everything in the wrong way. Whereas the person who has good thoughts, no matter what he sees, no matter what you tell him, maintains a positive and good thought. Now, I like this because it it reminds me to look for the good things in the church instead of dwelling on the things that are are broken. And, you know, I think that there are both things in the church and in the world. You know, we're all saints and sinner, um, which is a very Lutheran understanding and not Greek Orthodox at all. Um, but this is also runs very true for St. Pacios is he doesn't seem to want the laity to think all that hard, hard on things. Like he has several other quotes where he like, there's another quote that I've come across of his that's live simply, simply and without thinking too much like a child with his father faith without too much thinking works wonders. The logical mind hinders the grace of God in miracles, practice patience without judgment with the logical mind. So clearly stop that thinking it's going to get in the way of faith which i don't agree with but um i think that there is something to this you know be aware of where the flowers are you know see the good in the church see the good in the world i really appreciate the way you you are able to lift up from pacios the the things that are valuable that you're able to do the same thing like the the bees versus flies and with him himself uh and not just with the church you're able to say look there's good things about this person i wouldn't adopt all of his theology or all of his uh, spirituality whole hog because 
there is a certain like don't think about things too hard kind of mentality but that ability to uplift what's good that that seems like a really important thing and and in an era and a time when it's really really easy to discover the clay feet of any of our heroes uh whether you know in distant history or you know public figures now to be able to say we gotta tell the truth about people and name the things that are not great about them but to say that doesn't cancel out the things that are we can learn from that seems helpful um so yes because he's a saint he he has died now he died in 94. um he had many health problems there at the end but uh I think that as many of the the monastic people in Greek Orthodox, especially, um, you know, suffering helps produce faith. So again, I think he was okay. Sort of steered into that suffering. Yeah. 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 But that is St. Pacios. He's a, I, I've been enjoying, I I have one of his books. It's still packed away, but um, I've been enjoying reading his works um can i ask uh how how you for yourself personally have navigated when you're reading him uh and again like you say it sounds like a lot of what you have read of him is collected and cobbled together sets of his sayings so it's not like his you know grand masterpiece or systematic theology which maybe makes it a little more piecemeal but it sounds like you approach reading him with uh a certain wisdom and a readiness to be discerning of like, yeah, this is in the keeper pile. This is in the not so helpful. I'm going to discard it pile. Um, how, how do you, how do you do that? How do you do the sifting of this is really helpful. Uh, this is not so helpful. What, 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 what is that? Is there an intentional process for you? Is it more just the things that sort of at a gut level? Nah, that doesn't sound right. Uh, are there things you let just sit with you for a while? How, what, what, what's it like for you doing that sifting? Uh, I think it's it's mostly comparing it to what I already think and believe um, for my own reading of, you know, theology in general, reading the Bible, um, comparing it to my own tradition, uh, like, because he, he's Greek Orthodox, and he's, like, very traditional Greek Orthodox, so, like, clearly he doesn't think that women should be ordained. Um, in general, he thinks that Protestants are have it completely wrong and <laughs> I'm not about to convert to make St. Pacios happy. Um, so it, it, it's very much, you know, there, there are certain gems in his works, which resonates with me a lot, like, you know, be the bee, not the, not the fly, mm-hmm. you know, that's very much like, yes, I think that's beautiful. I think that's very helpful in cultivating a spiritual life and, um, trying not to dwell on all of the bad. Um, I found that especially helpful over the past year with the pandemic because um, I think as many pastors can attest to, the pandemic brought out the worst in people, including people in the church. And it, it was a very tough year, year plus. Mm-hmm. And so by reminding myself to constantly be looking for that good and to when, you know, especially when those days were really bad of like, it seemed like there was just a lot of negativity and, you know, getting feedback from the church about like, you're not opening up fast enough. You're not opening up 
right. Like there's too many restrictions, you know, that it was very much felt like everything I'm doing is, is not right. Reminding myself of those things that have come out of the church, those good conversations that have come out with people, um, you know, focusing on those things instead of focusing on the bad was a way that I kept myself grounded and reminded myself of why I'm in ministry and not just like, Oh man, the ministry's hard. Ministry's awful. I don't want to do this anymore. It stopped me from thinking that all the time. Are there are there times where you have found yourself in reading Paceus in particular because he's sort of a helpful case study, but maybe with others as well, where you you run across an idea or a thought at first that like seems like no, I don't like this at all, and like you you have to let it sit for a while, and then later you come around, or the more you read a person, you go, oh, I get what they're talking about, and in their context in this situation, like have there ever been times where you, in with, with Paceus you read him and at first like nope, this is in the burn pile, this is the, this for the flies, and then later come back around and like no, there's something valuable in here, or or the other way around at first go yes, I love this, and then come back around and go oh maybe not or, or or not really. I had that with Paul. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. So, uh, especially like the pseudo Paul, the stuff that's not like 100% sure. Yes. St. Paul actually wrote this, but like more likely it's somebody who wrote it and then stuck Paul's name on it so that their letter would be read. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's, um, a lot of the proof texting as to why women shouldn't be preachers is in, Paul's letters, yeah. right? It's not Jesus standing at the Sermon on the Mount going, oh yeah, by the way, don't ever have women leaders. No, Jesus didn't say that. Somebody else did and it got in the Bible. Um, but it was like, you know, I got all those proof textings when I was in early college. And then later in college, was, took a class on Paul that was taught by an ordained Methodist woman pastor who also was a lesbian, like, so, you know, she very clearly had thoughts and opinions about Paul and about these proof texting, um, clobber passages and helped me to see that for a lot of this stuff, you have to put it in its historical context. Like why would somebody put in this letter, women should learn in silence. What was happening with this congregation at that time that somebody would have to say, Hey women, can you be quiet for a while? Like what could have been going on? Um, and also Paul, the guy, it wasn't writing this to all the Christian churches. He was writing it to the specific community and some things in that letter seemed to be, Oh yes, all Christians should do this. And then some things were, Hey, this community, you need to do this. And so like, what is the difference? And if he was just writing it to just this one community, how much of that do we take on ourselves? And, um, you know, that there are many biblical scholars who came up with theories as to why this one community probably had a problem with women talking. And one of the theories that I really like, and I think has quite a bit of backbone is that the preachers would come in and speak in Greek and the women probably didn't know Greek as well as they knew Aramaic. And so they would constantly be asking their husbands um, or fathers uh, throughout the service, Hey, what did he just say? 
like, what is, what does that mean? And, you know, then the male figure who did know Greek would have to go, oh, he said this, you know, and so that it was a lot of chatter going on during the preaching portion of worship service. Um, And so that could have been one thing that could have been why pseudo Paul wrote women learn in silence. Um, So, yeah, it's a lot of stuff like that where uh, you, I, I had to go back and relook at the historical context as to why people said or wrote what they wrote. I appreciate your being willing to share what that experience has been like with you because I, I, it feels like this the, the, you end up at like in this sort of paradox of like uh, if if we aren't intentionally open to hearing voices that uh, rub up against what we already think we're only ever going to be in our own echo chambers and yet we have to have some kind of mes- mechanism for discernment of sifting through the stuff that we're exposed to and and to be able to discover that uh, when you read even a wise, learned voice like Pacios, uh, that uh, he, there's going to be some things you take and some things you get, nah, this is not really helpful. That, that, that's, that's important to reading and growing and spiritually is that ability to do that sifting and discerning. Um, but that, how do we do that in a way that also preserves humility enough that sometimes someone's going to offer something that at first my gut reaction was, I don't even want to listen. And okay, on second read, let me listen, let me consider what's going on there that somehow both of those have to be at play in our spirituality. Yeah. Cause even Basios has the context that is completely different than my own, right? Like he's Greek Orthodox. He lives over in Greece and Turkey. He, you know, grew up in the early 1900s, died in 94. Uh, so like his worldview is completely different than my worldview. And it, it's, it's kind it, it's a constant reminder of, I probably don't agree with this one paragraph, but why, why don't I agree? Um, and that often comes down to context Yeah, and, and why he's writing and saying what he's doing. And that, I think that's helpful, especially, and maybe we feel like we easier, more easily have permission to do this when we're not reading the Bible. Um, but like, this is one of the things I find so helpful with like, uh, like book studies or, uh, you know, like a, a, a small group or class that isn't a Bible study because people feel a little more easy to say, hey, I didn't like it where this author said X or Y or Z, where it feels for a lot of folks, man, it's really hard to say out loud, I really struggled with this verse or this passage or something. But when when you're reading another person, you can go, oh, yeah, what's going on for them? And that if we can then unpack both their historical context or their situation and then go, I get why they did what they did, or I understand it at least, even if I don't agree. And in my context, I'm still going to think and do what I want because I'm not supposed to copy them. Uh, it's okay that they're in one place and their setting is different and my setting is a different one. That seems a, a, an important ability that we're not great at. Because again, we it, so much of the culture we live in feels very much like at disagreement, we must start immediately, you know, lobbing, you know, name calling at each other rather than being able to live with difference of you're over there. Okay. Why? I get it. And if we don't agree, what are the things that we can still uh, hold in common or what are the things that can still hold us together? And can our belonging uh, among the people of God be more than just our like-mindedness or our sameness? Sarah, as you've been reading about Pathos and Particularly, I don't know if you've been doing any reading about the Greek or the Greek Orthodox Church. Has there been anything that has informed or challenged 
your faith tradition and your faith journey besides you know the women in ministry thing and that, that kind of stuff um because I, I don't know a lot about the greek orthodox church uh, or any of the orthodox churches so I, i'd be curious if there's anything that's kind of has stuck out to you i also do not know a whole lot about greek greek orthodox so my last call that i just left had um part of that call was being a campus minister at the local college. And um, so, it, you know, it was the Lutheran group. And, you know, it's the, it was the Lutheran campus ministry at IUP, but a very small percentage of our students that came every week were Lutheran. Um, you know, we had a Mennonite student, we had two Greek Orthodox students, we had uh, uh, some just kind of like non-denom Christians, um, so we had a wide variety, but we had two Greek Orthodox students and they kind of influenced this group of students to really appreciate and love icons. Mm -hmm. And so we actually have a quite a large collection of icons at the Lutheran campus ministry, like it's taken over like half a wall. And while I don't, find praying to icons or to saints very helpful. Like that's not part of my piety. It's not part of my spiritual practice. Um, I do like icons because I like that they're a visual reminder of either a Bible story that is important to me or to a saint and kind of keeps reminding me as to why that saint is important and what we can learn from that saint. Um, so when I left um, a couple months ago, the students actually gifted me with an icon of St. Pacios because they knew that this guy was somebody who I kept looking to in the past year. And so they got an icon of St. Pacios and they got one of those cardstock borders and they all wrote their names around the border and then framed it and gave it to me. And so it's it's this beautiful, beautiful thing that um, is still in storage. I'm going to be putting it up in my church office next week. And, but it's, you know, I don't pray to St. Pacios. That's not part of my piety the way that I think it is part of the piety of many Greek Orthodox. Um, but it's a visual reminder to me of why that person is important and beloved by God. Mm -hmm. I remember, and this goes way, way back to my own like confirmation class experience when I was a kid, like sixth or seventh grade. Uh, one of the things that we did uh, at one point was uh, took a tour of different uh, Christian denominations and this was uh, around the Cleveland, Ohio area. And I can remember going to uh, a local uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, must've been a Greek Orthodox cathedral in um, uh, Cleveland. And hearing the the priest with whom we spoke gave us this little tour of this bunch of like junior high school Lutheran kids in their in their summer confirmation camp experience, and he talked about the difference in in his understanding of their piety of not praying to the icons but praying through them. And mm -hmm. I, I I don't know that I ever quite exactly appreciate the difference, but that that, that difference of language has stayed with me of the idea of 
I think I think as a Protestant, I grew up with sort of this critique of, oh, those foolish Orthodox people praying to those pictures on the walls. And that was a pretty um, narrow minded like that was that was me car- me criticizing a caricature rather than asking the Orthodox, what is it that you think is happening here? And they would say this is a vehicle so- sort of like you described, Sarah, of like letting the pictures remind you of either biblical stories that then like, oh, I'm I, yeah, I'm in connection with the God who fed, you know, uh, uh, Elijah with the ravens or was, you know, uh, I'm, I'm praying to the God who kept Daniel safe in the lines and that, that sort of like, yeah, the, the, the same God who did these things, this is the one I'm in relation with. Or even the when, when they're icons of, of figures of saints in history, there's this sort of reminder of what, what the, the, the ancient creeds called the communion of saints, that idea that we are still connected to those who have gone before us and that they're not dead, that they're somehow still present and alive in the presence of God. And while I don't feel that there's a need, um, oh, I, I can't find my car keys, who's the proper saint to go to rather than like I can go to God about this. But there's a sense that others who are part of the family of God care about me in a way similar maybe to like, um, when I'm feeling alone, looking at the photographs of my extended family on the mantelpiece or in a, in a photo album or even on a, you know, a social media timeline, a reminder, oh, yeah, I'm loved by an awful lot of people who do care about me. And I don't talk to the pictures thinking that they're going to talk back. This, these aren't like photographs in a Harry Potter book. Um, but like, there's this sense that, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm beloved and I'm part of this much, much bigger picture and a much bigger extended family that stretches way, way back, not just to my local congregation or even my biological family, but for thousands of years. And that, that's a, an encouraging and humbling thing. I was introduced to icons in seminary, particularly the one of the Trinity, where they're oh, all yeah. sitting around the table. I think that's one of the one most people, if you know an icon, you know probably that one. And I remember like hearing the story behind that and all the meaning behind it. And there's a book by Henry Nowen which he talks about that and other icons um, that I still to this day do not own. Uh, <laughs> I own a ton of now one, but I don't own that book. Uh, one of these days I want to own it just because I want to try to understand um, our Catholic and our, and our Orthodox brothers and sisters and what it means to them to, to use their icons in worship. So one day, someday. <laughs> I, I think what I am fascinated by with icons is creating them yeah like i would love to take a workshop on how to i'm gonna get the verb wrong but it's i think it's right an icon yeah because they don't say it's drawing an icon they say it's writing writing an icon and so yeah someday someday one of my continuing education hours is going to be spent at a workshop on how to write icons because i think that would be cool one of the things I find really, really uh, engaging for my faith life these days, even though, like, like both of you said, I, I'm, I'm not one who grew up in a piety that had iconography as a uh, essential part of, of my faith tradition, but I really have an appreciation for contemporary artists who write icons and deliberately so with sort of a uh, either a modern take on what ancient people looked like or a reminder that the people whose stories are worth telling are still alive and living lives right now, not just 
hundreds or thousands of years ago. So like, uh, I can remember when I was in seminary, up at, at one of the upper halls at Trinity Seminary in Columbus, there was an icon of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And it was him holding the, the, um, the, the number card you get when you're arrested, uh, you know, from the, the Birmingham jail. And I can remember being just so, so struck because it was this weird juxtaposition of a Baptist preacher from the 20th century in this very ancient, you know, stylized form that is the, the, the icon style. And it did something to me. It was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, like we don't just believe that uh, people who lived a long time ago are reflections of the, the goodness of the character of God, but we're still continued to live in ways that do that. And that the thing you might be remembered for um, might look like getting into good trouble. You know, that like, that it, 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 so often the pictures of saints in icons are very, very solemn and they're, you know, holding a Bible or preaching and it's something that sort of looks respectable and religious. And here's an icon of somebody, you know, in jail being arrested and there's something of yeah like that that goes way back to our, our roots as as we first got used to get rounded up and fed to lions like th there is something faithful about that and, and, and there, there's something really valuable there i've also really been intrigued by artists uh, there's there's one artist whose name i forget but who goes uh under the who, whose merchandise or, or whose artwork is available under the the title um the modern saints and she does uh paintings often of ancient figures but in modern styles or design so i have a uh, an icon she's written of uh mary the mother of our lord but uh she's modeled after um not some scandinavian one from the 1800s but from a syrian refugee uh from an actual photograph of a of a woman who's a refugee from syria and like there's this reminder of not only that mary the mother of our lord did not look like she grew up in Minnesota, probably, uh, but also that Mary, the mother of our Lord, know, knew, knew what it was like to be on the run and a refugee, um, and that there's, there's a realism that, that hit home there. Um, and I, I, I find that really intriguing that an artist makes that choice. How do I help, how do I want to help bring these real life people to life so that people can sense these as real people, not simply as works of art? One of the Similar. modern icons I really like is uh, Maximilian, St. Maximilian, because half of it, he's in a Nazi concentration camp uniform. Yeah, yeah the uh, Maximilian Kolbe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like a story of like, why is he remembered as a saint in, in history? It's uh, when, when there he was in the death camp and the Nazi guards were looking to, they wanted to make an example of uh, an attempted prison break and they were going to kill 10 yep. people at random. And he volunteered to take the place of somebody else who had kids uh, so that uh, just just he would die and not someone would become fatherless. Um, yeah, and starves away, you know, di dies uh, in a, on a hunger strike and uh, being sentenced to death or being starved there in the concentration camp. And yeah, that image that what what it is that makes him uh, worthy of our retelling his story is in a sense that, yeah, that sacrificial love um, and that there, there's there's not glamour or pomp or circumstance to it, but it's suffering love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other things that you would uh, want to introduce us to about uh, St. Pecios, the many named? So uh, this is just kind of a funny aside. He, you know, just, he, he lived in the 1900s, right? That was not that long ago. Lots of technologies came out. And um, so a lot, but a lot of times when you're reading him, you kind of forget that it's he's so modern like 
there's a lot about him and how he speaks and what he speaks about that you kind of feel like you're reading um, one of the ancient fathers. Until he says stuff like this, thoughts are like airplanes flying in the air. If you ignore them, there is no problem. If you pay attention to them, you create an airport inside your head and permit them to land. And so, you know, just every once in a while, you know, there's that, that like sprinkling of modernism that's like, oh yes, this isn't an ancient father. This is that like, he, he died after I was born. Yep. Yeah. It's funny because that, that insight there reminds me an awful lot of a quote I've heard attributed to Martin Luther about that you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. And that like, it sounds like Paceus is just sort of like up to technology and instead of birds, he's, he's <laughs> talking about airplanes. But interesting how the the notion, the, the underlying idea of the metaphor could be the same across centuries uh, and just the, the, you've slightly updated what the, the, the illustration is. Well, and for me, at least when I think of Greek saints, I think of folks that are centuries old. Yeah. Not somebody who was alive when I was alive. You know, we didn't overlap all that much, but we overlapped for about, you know, 11 years, you know, (laughs) and it's just like, oh, wow. Okay. Um, There are still saints that are being named in the Catholic tradition and the Greek tradition and other traditions, you know, that are very modern. Yeah. that that reminder that the orthodox tradition still continues to operate and to do that i think is is a wake-up call for us in the west and in traditions like ours that sort of grew out of roman catholicism in the west we sometimes forget yeah the orthodox church didn't stop after the great schism it has continued and they look at us as the ones who broke away um and we just sort of think like oh they went into business right um Mm -hmm. and so like occasionally you'll hear in american news you know what uh, what latest figure, you know, the current Pope has made into a saint because we still track some of uh, Catholicism's moves in the West. But to, to remember, yeah, the, the Eastern tradition uh, in the various branches of Orthodoxy, they have also continued to do what the, the early church did, which was, to, you know, name, name the stories of people that we want to make sure don't forget their story, don't forget who they are. Yeah, it's, it's also shocking because if you Google him, like a lot of the image results is his icons, which are like illustrations. And then all of a sudden sprinkled in the middle of those is like an actual photograph. Yeah. And, and again, it's just one of those like culture shock moments of like, oh yeah, cause he was alive in the 1950s. That's when he became a monk. Like, yeah, of course it's a yeah. modern photograph. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I I sometimes have struggled with about traditional icons is you know that those are meant to be stylized and they're not meant to be a portrait of what they look like. And if you learn how to decode them, oh, that sort of enlarged forehead is meant to be a signature of wisdom. And like these, nobody thinks that that anybody writing an icon in the ancient style is copying a photograph of who they look like. And you learn that. But then when you see a real person, you go, oh, yeah, these are real people. And so we don't know what... You know, some ancient person like Athanasius looked like, so we're just guessing. But yeah, with someone like who lived in the 20th century, we know. And it, it, it's a reminder these aren't made up lives, but that these are real people who have tried their very, very best to live faithfully uh, and to, to experience God in the midst of their lives, in the midst of the, the flies and the honeybees and the garbage and the beauty all around us. Here also, Sarah, do you know what made him a saint? No. 
Okay. Lutheran answer is the love of God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think he did. I think he did a couple of um, miracles, but I couldn't begin to tell you what they what they were. Uh, like I read a couple of like paragraphs on like in like Orthodoxy and stuff to see about him, but I I, I focused a little bit too much on his early life because that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot to look up why he was canonized just curious i I know a little bit about the catholic tradition so it would be interesting maybe in a future series we'll have to talk about like even what what does that mean how has that that language and that process changed over centuries and in different branches of the tradition because there are figures who are ancient 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 that have no miracles attributed to them but they were important you know early teachers and pastors in the church and it was just sort of yeah we got to remember Barnabas because he was a really good encourager so yeah St. Barnabas or yeah we got to remember Paul he was a you know he wrote half the New Testament but it's not about how many miracles he did. As well as I feel like that 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 the um that the system to become canonized is different in the Roman Catholic Church to yeah. the Greek Orthodox and like there's a couple of different steps like uh, Mother Teresa I think is she's in the middle step like beatified soon she's yeah. probably going to be canonized mm-hmm. as a saint but like she can't be there yet for some reason um, I don't know I you know Luther says that we are all saints yep. And we are also all sinners. And so I have no idea what made him a Greek Orthodox saint. Sorry. Well, I, I think in some ways that, that statement helpfully like encapsulates what our series here is all about. That like we're appreciating other traditions, but also how do we interact with them from our own? And we can't help but be Lutherans and Methodists engaging with these other people mm-hmm. and learning what's the value of listening to other voices outside of our own echo chamber, but also what are the reasons why we hold on to parts of our own tradition and uh, don't all just become disciples of St. Pacios uh, or Quakers like, uh, like Richard Foster last time. So if this has been a valuable conversation for you, we hope you'll join us for more uh, next time uh, here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye. Bye.